Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio Network. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation certified instructor and resiliency expert, helping people to think, speak, and live positively through the challenges of life. Find out about me in this interview at my website. It's Tom, the number two, and tall, T-A-L-L dot com. My co-host today is my colleague at TechBlocks, Peter Gorl, and Peter introduced me to today's guest, Andrew Jenkins. So, Peter, uh, introduce yourself and TechBlocks before we introduce Andrew, please. Thanks very much, Tom, and uh, great to be riding shotgun with you again this evening. Yes, uh, uh, my name's Peter Gorl, and I'm uh, Vice President of Business Development and Client Relations here at TechBlocks. You know, we live in a technology-fueled customer-led disruptive ecosystem that requires companies to adapt quickly to the demands of the market. And here at TechBlocks, our clients choose to partner with us because we focus on discovering cost-saving opportunities for them while building unique and engaging customer experiences that increase client loyalty and drive revenue. We're kind of a hybrid consulting firm that offers our clients a three-pronged approach to solution development. One, as consultants, we, we, you know, we work through a meaningful, realistic strategy with them. Uh, on the second front, we create the necessary applications, websites, and systems that, you know, that help build out. And three, we operate in, a, in a, what I'd say an agnostic manner as it relates to technology. So we found that by focusing on our clients, business success from the start, we quickly gain their respect and move to a trusted advisor uh, position. And it's at that point where we truly get engaged in a partnership as opposed to that client-vendor relationship. Well, back to you, Tom. Thanks very much for the uh, opportunity to uh, present TechBox. And our guest today is the amazing Andrew Jenkins. Andrew Jenkins, I was just doing the math in my head as uh, Peter was uh, saying that, his entrepreneurial adventures began when he launched an e-commerce company selling apparel in 1995. So that's 19 years ago, and that's BG before Google, and even before credit card transactions over the Internet was even commonplace. Since then, he spent the last 20 years working in information and communication technology. That's including social media, wireless, e-business, and he provides social media strategy and social selling services to numerous mid to large enterprises that almost every Canadian would know of. One of his most fascinating projects was consulting to the Royal Bank of Canada as head of social media strategy. Strategy And before his work in technology, Andrew was active in the film and television industry, working on a variety of commercials and television projects. And he also produced a film exhibited at TIFF, uh, Toronto International Film Festival, for you who don't know that, as well as internationally at the Sydney and Melbourne Film Festivals. And the film was also broadcast on several stations in Australia. That is a diverse biography. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I, I describe it as somewhat eclectic, but uh, it works for me, and it's, uh, I look at it as it's, uh, it led me to where I am today, so uh, it's all good. 
Eclectic, yes. Now tell me, <laughs> 19, uh, 1995, you're selling apparel. This mm-hmm. is 19 years ago. Okay. Uh, did a lot of your family and friends think you were crazy or even just flat out call you crazy? Well, it, it's funny. A friend of mine from film school was uh, working on websites. And he uh, clicked on the and was showing me the work that he was doing. And he clicked on the thumbnail picture of a shirt. Now, I mean, thumbnails we see uh, all the time now. But then he clicked on it, and this picture of a shirt got bigger. And I had this epiphany. And, and I'd uh, grown up through high school and university working in a menswear store. And I saw this as where the world was going. And I saw this as an opportunity. I thought, you know, eventually everyone will buy online. You know, thankfully I was proven right, but I, I was just, I was too early. Right. Uh, you know, the logistics of shipping goods out of Canada, which was where most of my inquiries were coming from, were uh, too onerous at the time. It's much easier now mm-hmm. uh, because there's a lot of systems and, you know, people have cut the path uh, ahead of me. But, uh, you know, yes, going around friends, family, uh, and more importantly, businesses that I would approach to say, I want to sell your merchandise on the Internet. And they would look at me sort of sideways, and you want to do what? And I would go to the banks and say, I want to take credit card transactions over the web. And they would say, you want to do what? And the banks would say, well, we'd like a $25,000 security deposit per credit card. And my answer was, if I had that kind of money, I wouldn't give it to you because I could use it for marketing. Uh, and But those were some of the, the roadblocks. And then you would have companies that were reluctant to sell to you because they were fearful that because of the e-commerce channel, you were in, you know, somehow going to undercut uh, their existing anchor clients. And you know, my intention wasn't necessarily to undercut, but it was just to offer a, a new a new um, access point. So there's a lot of people that were gun shy or apprehensive uh, to deal with me. But I you know, I took what I learned from the experience and started working for an e-commerce software company that was targeting companies like mine. Uh but we were targeting uh, companies like mine only in the US where there was a much a higher adoption rate. Right. Uh there was a, you know, there was a huge appetite for it uh and they were 3 years ahead of the Canadian market. So um, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Right. If I hadn't done it, I wouldn't be where I am today. So exactly, you were you were in this industry before it even was an industry. <laughs> I was uh, a pioneer, shall we say? Yes, very good, Peter. Why don't you start off with a question for Andrew here? Yeah, I was thinking, um, um, Andrew, what what is your own personal um, definition of social selling? I mean, everybody's everybody kind of got an opinion about it, and I think that probably from uh, I think for for you, I think this uh, this might be a a nice uh, topic to start off uh, this discussion with. Sure, I mean, there's a lot of uh, different perspectives on what social selling is and can be, uh, but from my perspective, I see social selling as the use of social media to identify prospects and profile them in greater detail and influence them along their decision-making journey with the content that I share and and with the ways that I engage them. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Nice. And uh, I, what I love about social selling, 
uh, more than anything is the emphasis on serving before selling. Mm-hmm. It used to be that you would close sales. Social selling allows you to warm up a prospect and open up a sale. Uh, well, one rather. of the, the mantras that um, about social selling is to lead with content of value right. that educates, uh, that informs, that isn't necessarily overtly selling. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of John Ferreira who was the founder of Goldmine Contact Management, mm-hmm. if, if you recall that yeah. from years ago. Loved he's, it. He's now the, the founder of a social CRM solution called Nimble. And the way he talks about it is, uh, I love his phrase, if you teach someone to fish, eventually they'll figure out that you sell fishing poles. <laughs> you know, I actually was having a discussion with uh, another client this week, and and we we're talking about uh, the fact that he he wanted to he wanted to blow his whole story out on on a platform quick and fast, and he thought that that was going to be the right way to to approach his business. And I and he was a, he looked at me like like as if I was crazy when I said no no no. Just give them a little bit and tease them and then move them to the, like, get to know them. Because if, yeah. you've, thrown, if you've thrown it all out at once, I mean, what, what's left to talk about? Yeah. You, you can't close someone on the first tweet. Uh, <laughs> and it's really about, I don't want this to sound disingenuous, but it's about wooing someone. And, uh, you know, you date someone before you get married. So... I often talk about how you do things to either regularly appear on someone's radar. It mm-hmm. shows them that, one, um, you have a presence, and it's that regular reminder uh, that um, you know, you, they, they never quite forget you, which is uh, you know, part of the goal. Uh, it's analogous to when you drive down the same street all the time, you always see the same businesses, and when you need something from one of those businesses, you know top of mind where to go because that one, it's been compounded in your mind day in and day out. Exactly. And that, you know, that's really the objective in, in uh, one aspect of social selling is to remind people of who you are, what you do, and how you can help them uh, through the content that you share and just being present in their, I'll call it, ecosystem. Right, yeah. and this could be this could involve anything of your life, really. Uh, uh, I'm surprised. Like I on Facebook, I share, and and I meet people from all walks of wherever I participate in life at church and all over the world. From people from the Napoleon Hill Foundation who who uh, you know uh, found me o- online, and uh, so uh, you know I, I love this uh, uh, you know social selling and how it you're able to reach out to such a large population around the the world if need be, if you need be and like just posting on facebook if you volunteer for a rotary event and you go to something like that and you take some pictures and you post it uh again that's keeping in people's vision and they're like wow okay look at that oh man i belong to rotary too and that way you can build common uh, connections with people by posting things that you're doing, and they're like, "Oh yeah, look at that, Andrew. Oh wow, cool. I went to that place as well." Or, "Oh wow, yeah, I went to that restaurant as well." So as you say, you're keeping top of mind, and uh, and in my case, with people in like a lot of different countries. So it's very cool 
to have that effect, uh, and that's what social media does. It allows you to stay in front of people so that when you eventually meet them in person, they're saying, hey, I saw that you went here, and I saw that you went there. And it's like, oh, good, you do read those posts after all. <laughs> well, in, in the, the workshops uh, and, and social selling programs that I deliver, there's a section that I, uh, where I talk about how updates uh, rule. Uh, and that you know, by posting regular updates in your social channels, just as you described, people understand where you're going and what you're doing. And it's not necessarily bragging. It's just uh, a, it becomes a kind of a natural thing. Yeah. And some people are like, well, I don't need to know where you're going. But other people actually appreciate it. And, and if you put the reverse on that and you're paying attention to people's update, uh, the updates from people within your network, it's an opportunity to engage them in conversation. When they mention a conference that they're attending, maybe you can't go, but you can ask um, afterward how it was, and it's an, it's an excuse to engage them. It's okay. a conversation trigger. And uh, I'm here tonight because of an update on my LinkedIn. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So this is social example. selling in action. <laughs> well, it wasn't even selling. It was just I, I posted an update wasn't on, even, right? on uh, LinkedIn about uh, some recognition I'd received. Uh, Peter liked it, and that actually put me on your radar. Right. Um, you wouldn't have. Uh, I mean, Peter may have mentioned me in passing some other time or at some point in the future, but the uh, the mechanics of social platforms like LinkedIn brought uh, to your attention uh, one of my updates. Exactly, and this and, is and exactly how we're here work. today. <laughs> That's right. And, and thank Wait, you again. And a, a little bit anecdotal and maybe a little bit off, but still remaining in focus. Uh, about um, two or three weeks ago, uh, uh, one of my Twitter followers from California, and she's actually um, involved in the space program, uh, NASA space program. In fact, her husband spent... Uh, uh, two trips uh, to the uh, International Space Center, and we uh, we talk on a regular basis. And uh, I noticed that there was a I noticed that there was a, a big uh, space conference in Toronto, and I just reached out and I said, uh, Michelle, are you going to be at this conference by any chance? She says, I damn well am. <laughs> I said, Good, we're going for coffee, right? So I actually got to put a face next to it. But these are the kinds of things you see. She was so secure, we felt like. You know, in knowing me, we felt like we'd known each other, and we had, because we'd interacted with each other for what two years now. Exactly. So I mean, it was as if, met in person, as if I'd like known her forever. <laughs> you may not have met in person to date, but when you do, it's like meeting an old friend. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly and, where I was and headed. And Peter, you weren't having coffee. One thing you learned about her is she's like a beer connoisseur. She's so a, I think you were having beers yes, with her. Reminding me, she actually beers. did say she was a beer connoisseur. She's part of a beer club. So I ended up taking her to the beer bistro on uh, King Street in Toronto, and uh, and <laughs> that proved to be uh, a really a great event for her. So she was very pleased. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, well here's done. something I uh, wonder about sometimes, uh, really? even in my own personal case with my own personal branding. How much stuff is, how much free stuff is too much? When do you cut a line from free to, hey man, you're taking up my time. This has got to cost <laughs> you something. Do you mean if someone, uh, oftentimes people will email me or call me and say, can we get together? I want to pick your brain. 
Right. Or they'll email me and say, you know, what exactly are all the things you need to do to find your definite purpose, like Napoleon Hill spoke about. And it's like, well, you know, that may take me a number of minutes to explain in an email or in person. Uh, well, it, uh, no. To your point, it's it's not something that you can answer in you know a few bullet points in in an email. Right. Um, sometimes I'll put the onus back on them to say like, you know, help me help you. you know, the, the quote from Jerry Maguire. Um, you know, give me a little bit more about what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And there's no shortage of resources that I can point them to uh, on uh, mm-hmm. online. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's not going to be a, an opportunity for a, a business engagement of some um, type, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just you know helping a friend or whatever. I, I don't mind. Um, I believe in paying it forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm you know I help a number of trade associations that I'm either on the board of or you know I'm a co-marketing chair for a charity. Uh, so I've learned long ago that if you pay it forward, it comes back. You don't and you don't worry about when, right, uh, or from where. Or from where, and it's not even that you do it with an agenda, an expectation uh, as part of your agenda. You just do it, uh, and uh, I'll do things like uh, I'll do some research for them, and maybe I'll give them the search results from Google, and I'll send them the link from the the website. Let me Google that for you. So I've done the uh, the heavy lifting for them, and mm-hmm. then they can explore the different resources at their leisure. I mean that's a very simple uh, way to respond to them. But if it's something a little more targeted. Um, sometimes I'll give them some tips. I'll send them some blog posts that I've written that address the questions that they're asking, mm-hmm. and uh, or the blogs from uh, other people or, or other resources. Because I tend to be uh, archiving a lot of material that uh, informs the work that I do. So uh, I've got a, a roster in the back of my head that I can draw from. Nice. That's a that's that's a good thing to point <laughs> to. A good phrase, archiving material, and this is even something when you're in something like I do with Napoleon Hill, and that you read a lot of great quotes. You got to archive a lot of good Ooh. books, and and so interesting that you mentioned archiving stuff. Peter, you must have a question. Yeah, I I, I was thinking back to um, you know uh, a post you uh, positioned in LinkedIn a little while ago associated with a, a question, the, a burning question about the you know adult the adoption of uh, social selling in right. in a lot of uh, in a lot of organizations and I'm and, I, and it sort of jumps to mind is like what do you Andrew see as the biggest challenges for salespeople and the and the companies that work within them uh, as far as adopting the social selling uh, approach well i think it starts uh earlier in just the adoption of social media in general I was a panelist uh, at a conference uh, in the spring, and we asked the moderator of our panel to survey the audience before we got going with our session. And there was approximately 100 people in the room, and they were all from financial services and insurance. It was a conference for that industry. And she asked, how many in the room are on LinkedIn? And 100% of the room put their hands up. How many of you are on Facebook? And nearly 100 percent put their hands up how many of you are on twitter and there was you know uh, approximately um uh you know maybe 50 percent and then we asked about instagram and snapchat and other platforms and the numbers uh, dwindled from there then she jumped back to linkedin and said of those of you on linkedin how many of you actively use it to connect less than 10 percent 
of those of you on LinkedIn, how many of you pay for it? And again, less than 10%. And I had friends from LinkedIn Canada in the room, and I, I spoke to them afterwards, and they said, you know, it's obvious that we have work to do. And going back to what I was saying earlier about it's, it's about the adoption of social media. So here is a room full of working professionals that uh, when you do that just, you know, um, straw poll or show of hands uh, survey uh, of uh, social media penetration uh, within uh, just that sample survey, you realize there's still a ways to go. And even the tools that they have, like LinkedIn, uh, is underutilized. Hmm. And so when it comes to the adoption of social selling, those are some of the hurdles that I face in the, in the sales teams that I've worked with. Oh, wow. I'm dealing with people that, you know, yeah, I go on LinkedIn maybe once a month, and I just <laughs> respond to some of those invites, and that's about it. Some people equate it to the online chamber of commerce. Some people think it's a resume repository. These are all unfortunate uh, misconceptions about what it is. Right. Now, but I should qualify things. When it comes to social selling, I'm not suggesting that it's the abandonment of all other sales processes and methods that have come before it. Mm -hmm. It is meant to simply complement what's already um, being utilized. And it, you know, there's with the right approach and the right adoption of methods and, and uh, tool usage there is a way to augment your existing efforts to you know, maybe reduce the number of cold calls you've got to make and increase the number of warm referrals you get. Uh, uh, but it's not m meant to suggest that it's going to replace everything you've done before and somehow be your salvation when it comes to making right. your quota. You're yeah. talking my language. This is a guy who's made 25 years of cold calls, 200,000 plus, uh, and so this is like a much nicer way. <laughs> but at the same time, like you said, Andrew, like uh, my process involves sending an email first and then following up the next day with the old-fashioned phone call. Now I can refer to the email. Uh, people can then refer, and I give them my email address that it's from, and they can search it and read it. But again, augmenting what you're already doing and what is already working. The phone is still going to work. Uh, I used to reach Fortune 500 company presidents, and so did my team. And we just knew if you dialed and got their personal number, you just dial it often enough, at some point they're going to pick it up. <laughs> so the phone is still a tool to reach people, yeah. even if it's just to remind them that you're out to reach them so that when you do reach them, they know, okay, ooh, let's reward Tom because he's been pretty diligent. Yeah, well, but building on that, Tom, uh, you know, the reality is the LinkedIn tool itself offers you an opportunity to uh, take a look at, uh, investigate, research the individuals that you're going to call anyway, and, and put some kind of mindset into your conversation before you end. So, so that call could hardly be called cold anymore. Exactly. Wouldn't you agree, Andrew? Oh, completely. And you know, I, I just want to say that Eventually, at some point, you're going to be on the phone with your prospect or qualified lead. Right. You're not going to close them over Twitter, and you're not <laughs> going to close them over an email message within LinkedIn or even right. an email. Right. Yeah. Uh, you're likely going to close them over the phone or in person or a combination thereof. Right. But as Peter was describing, if I uh, – well, I'll give an example to build on what Peter was saying. I was speaking to uh, a prospect that I'd had conversations with before uh, in New York, a VP of digital marketing for an insurance company. 
And I looked through his LinkedIn profile, and I noticed that he had a degree in industrial design. And I happened to teach a, a, a university course uh, here in Toronto at the Ontario College of Art and Design, uh, OCAD University. Uh, and um, some of my students are industrial design. Well, uh, his degree was from the Rhode Island School of Design in Rhode Island. And uh, so the next time we were on the phone together, I mentioned in passing, I said, by the way, I noticed from your LinkedIn profile where you have your degree from and what you have your degree in. And then I talked to him about my teaching, completely unrelated to the business conversation we were having. But it was you know, the right opportunity to bring it up. It changed the dynamic of our conversations <clears throat> for everyone that followed. And in terms of differentiating me from my competition that might have been calling on him, mm-hmm. we had a much stronger rapport. We had much more in common. And people buy from who they know and like. And people like people who know them. So I knew him better just by checking out his profile for an extra minute before I got on the phone. Exactly. Exactly. Even like past companies can be a clue, like, oh, wow, that company, oh, I love that company. And, you know, and so anything you can find out where you can build a common connection is now I don't make cold calls anymore. And woohoo, after 200,000 cold calls, (laughs) I'm glad to not make cold calls anymore. Well, you can even. I've had the benefit of listening to Tom, actually, um, at my operation there in uh, Vaughan. And um, he. he really does. Uh, dom- I, I think I classify it as domesticating the call as much <laughs> as possible. I don't know whether that's a, or a, a, maybe I just made that phrase up, but it's actually taking it out of that that high level barrier where you know that you're trying to break through that glass ceiling type call, and bringing it down to what a less commercial level. And 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 I think that that's exactly what you've done when you've actually process the piece of information between yourself and the individual that you're speaking to with with that element of commonality between you. Exactly. Well, it turns it from a call to a conversation. Exactly, yeah. into a conversation, exactly, where eventually you say, oh, gosh, we should talk about business now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, right, what did you call again for? <laughs> yeah, why were you calling? <laughs> That's a great call, actually, when that happens. I... <laughs> <laughs> then the guy is, like, in love with you before he even knows what you do. Uh, uh, Andrew, let me ask you this, because I work with a great friend of mine, Brad uh, uh, Zalas, uh, liquid leadership author, and he talks about uh, he's uh, helps companies with the communication divide between old people like me, old being 51, and Peter. Well, God knows how old he is. Stop it now. And uh, and young people. Um, and so I think old people like me like to see someone sitting at a desk pounding out the phone, and you can see the effort they're making, and they get hung up on, and they swear, oh, that dirty dog hung up on me. Whereas I think young people can know you could be sitting at a desk all day, you know, quiet as a church mouse, and you could send like 80 emails, engage five people, and book a bunch of meetings without ever talking to the person. Uh, is that a lot of what you're trying to do and what the work you do, explaining social media to older people and how helping them understand how younger people use it to communicate and get through to each other? Well, I mean, no, no, I'm not that far behind you in age, by the way. So, <laughs> uh, I, I fall into your category as well. But when it comes to um, 
you know, people will say, well, let's get the interns or the the kids to do the handle the social for us. Um, no disrespect to to younger people that, and many of whom I work with, uh, especially in in some of the strategy projects that I've been involved in. Uh, but it's a matter of they understand using social to communicate with their friends and family. It's not about understanding the use of social media from a strategic point of view. Hmm. And, for example, when I talk to the students I have at OCAD University that are you know, undergraduates, they're in their you know, early 20s, they're in third and fourth year, and they're about to graduate. And I'm talking to them about establishing a presence on LinkedIn. And I have to you know, be blunt with them to say, your parents and the friends of your parents that are going to help you, uh, you know, make the transition as graduates into the work world are not going to become your friends on Facebook. Maybe your parents will, mm. but their friends aren't. They're not going to make introductions and connections for you as right. you make your way um, unless you're on something like LinkedIn or you're, or you're going to do it via email. But if you uh, establish a presence on LinkedIn and still, and you know, build out your profile as you go, uh, that's going to be a leg up for you in relation to other uh, students graduating that dismiss LinkedIn as, you know, that's for old people. Right. But that's just one piece of it. And when you talk about, you know, dealing with older sales leadership, where I've typically won, o- won them over is in um, preliminary meetings. I'll go in and I'll show them everything that I can learn about them from social, unbeknownst to them. Mm. simply by the data that they've shared. And there was a media company that I'm doing a program for. They had five regional vice presidents uh, in a meeting to meet with me. And, and I was there on, as uh, hosted by their SVP. And I walked in, and I was giving a brief presentation, and I got to a sec- section of my presentation, and I went around the table. I went to one regional vice president. I said, here's what I know about you from LinkedIn and your profile. Here's what I know about you from Instagram and from Twitter. And then I went to the person beside him. I said, according to Twitter, Kim, you love dogs. She tweeted once in her life, and it was a, t- a tweet with a picture of her dog. <laughs> and, then, and her chin hit the table. And then I turned to the person beside her and said, uh, you and I can have a conversation about academics. You're the only one in the room with a Ph.D. You've taught, uh, taught at universities. Um, you were involved with a university that I did some course development with. And so you and I could have that kind of conversation. And I gave them ideas about everything that I could do with them to build rapport. And then I said, of the six of you in the room, four of you are interested in golf. And they all just sat there stunned. And I said, this is all insight from free, readily available data about you. Hmm. Wow. That's all I needed to do. Would that be the kind of anecdotal uh, story you'd tell if somebody came to you and said that they think this whole thing's a waste of time? Uh, Yeah, I would share that example. Or if I know I'm going to meet them in advance, um, and if I have a sense that they're going to be um, hard to convince, I'll learn what I can about them. Or I show in one of my presentations, I give them the example of a client who was won over in the exact same way, who you know, de- depicts himself in a very professional way on LinkedIn. But when, he, when I showed his Twitter profile and the associated language by which he describes himself, mm. it's softer. He's a little more human. And he expresses different interests than he did on LinkedIn. 
Hmm. And then I show who he had the most conversations with on Twitter, and it was a golf pro. And I said, his Twitter profile says he loves golf. I now know for certain he loves golf because the person he spoke to the most on Twitter was a golf pro. Am I going to invite him to the company golf tournament? And am I going to suggest that we play as a foursome in a charity tournament? Or am I going to send him tickets to be an observer at a tournament? Or even just bring up the subject? Any one of those options exists for me. Wow, uh-huh. and they'd all be brilliant. They'd all have the same. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing they'd all have the same outcome, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. You just ask the guy. So uh, I like this golf pro. Uh, you, <laughs> see, you like him too. That guy would have gone off for like ten minutes. Oh, really? I love that guy. <laughs> it just goes back to what I was saying earlier about people buy from who they know and like, right. and people like people who know them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Here's I, I don't want it to sound like I, I gave a presentation to uh, a, a room filled with sales and marketers from an exchange transfer fund company. Yeah. And I gave these anecdotes. And one of the people put up their hand and they said, Isn't that, doesn't that kind of creep people out if you share that with them? I said, well, you have to decide whether you want to share it, uh, whether you think there would be, you know, accomplish anything by sharing it, or you simply don't share it, but incorporate it into how you build rapport. It's just information I have in the back of my mind that I know about them. And I'm not being secretive or, or um, like I'm not stealth. It's just right. a matter of I happen to know that this person likes golf uh, in advance of ever meeting them. And if the opportunity presents itself to talk about golf, we will. If it doesn't, I'm not going to try so hard to bring it around to golf that it feels awkward and contrived. Right. Right. Um, it's all about using the insights appropriately uh, to build rapport. And if I like not to use it at all because circumstances dictate it, then so be it. Right. Yeah. And Andrew, I, you know, I, on a regular basis, and my clients have always asked me the big sixty-four million dollar question, and that is, you know, where's the ROI in in what you're presenting to me? And I'm, and I'm sure you've probably had that question thrown at you. Uh, with regards to the kind of uh, uh, sales training that you're involved in, and and how do you, how do you tend to prove that out for them? Well, um, sometimes you can be cheeky and say, well, what was the ROI of last month's golf tournament? Um, <laughs> <laughs> or you can be. I love when the ROI question comes up as it relates to social selling because to me, it is one of the easiest things to prove because it's designed into it because. It's um, logical that if I actually make it easier for you to get more quality prospects, uh, higher conversion to meetings, uh, and more um, calls to meetings confirmed, then ROI will fall out of that process. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if I'm enabling you to identify prospects uh, faster or more easily. And, and uh, get the intelligence about them as well as co- competition because of what's available through social. There's a hard, it, even that can be, you know, to a certain degree quantified. Uh, you're working better, faster, smarter. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to, um, again, you know, getting more meetings, then uh, we all want a larger funnel at the top because we know numerically more sales fall at the bottom. There was a, a gentleman, a financial advisor that came up from the U.S. Uh, that was uh, in the same conference that I was at uh, in May, 
and he works with his assistant, and his assistant goes through his LinkedIn network, and the only objective he has on a weekly basis, oh, he has others, I'm sure, but the primary objective, <laughs> I should say, is to have four new conversations per week. That's less than one a day coming from his network, so referrals. And so in conjunction with his assistant, they mine his network. And over the last, uh, I think at that time, he said over 18 months, he'd added 200-plus people to his network and $150,000 to his income. Wow. By being systematic. So you know, to tie it back to your question about ROI, if I'm giving you more meetings, better quality, uh, and um, you know, less time being wasted with unqualified leads, or you're nurturing them until they become qualified. All of that translates to ROI. Brilliant! Wow, that is a nice number, 150 grand. And that's you know, that's not from z- zero to 150. That was in addition to what he was accustomed to. Make. Right. Wow. <laughs> and so that uh, makes it a different discussion when you can talk about that kind of ROI. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Andrew, what about, like, geez, since I started working with TechBox, I started following a lot of people on LinkedIn and Twitter mm-hmm. that do what we do, and the words sound the same. A lot of them sound the same. Uh, and yet you and I and Peter were fascinated by interesting and unique Uh, Peter will call me over, look at this website, or I'll call him over, look at this website. Uh, So how do you, gosh, like social selling, how do you be unique or different, or do you have to be unique and different to get the business results you're trying to get with that ROI? Well, um, no, you you raised an interesting point, and I want to touch on something that you just uh, articulated there, how you and Peter will share different things with each other. And yes, there's a lot of people that are touting uh, and evangelizing social selling. Um, Many of us are taking a different approach with it. Some are just, uh, I won't say just, some of them are wanting to be evangelists and keynote speakers, but they don't want to do training. Um, And others like to do training and aren't too fussed about being keynote speakers. Whatever, you know, the, the spectrum of people in the social selling space. And there's people that are social sellers, but they work for companies that have social selling social mm-hmm. uh, selling technology. But I want to highlight that sharing of information amongst the two of you is no different from sharing uh, information of value on Twitter or LinkedIn. When you survey people within an office to see, um, quick question of, of someone in an office, what's your favorite feature on Microsoft Word? And you ask 10 people, you'll get 10 different answers. And in some cases, by asking that same question to 10 different people, you'll learn there's probably about four features of Word that you're ne- you've never heard of or touched. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's the same thing where I, I collaborate and commiserate with other social selling practitioners. I share what I know, and even with competitors, and they share what they know. And we collectively learn and improve, and we also learn what doesn't work. So that when we are engaged with our clients, we're already bringing, uh, I'll call it the informed perspective of a collection of practitioners to bear. Yeah, I, I find that I find that people today tend to 
aggregate information, curate information, and 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 it's and it's it's not like it's been out there for years in some cases, and and they're drawing up on old remnants of uh, of things that want, you know somebody famous once said, and yet there's there's some value in it if it's kind of placed in a you know in a in a in a in a new and informed way i i mean i never i never tire of it and how do you feel about the way that people use that aggregated that curated information andrew from your perspective well i mean i do it myself and i i'm constantly um well, I shouldn't say constant. When I have a, a few minutes, uh, if I'm get, getting on the subway, I will launch one of my favorite apps, which is called Flipboard. And Flipboard is curating content. But what it'll do is it'll render my um, Twitter feed like an electronic magazine. And I will be flipping through what's on my Twitter feed, and then I will bookmark articles and blog posts that I either want to go back to or I know for clients, uh, whether it's in social selling or for some of the other services I provide, I can flag that as content worthy, uh, um, worth uh, sending to them or to use for the content that I want to share on their behalf through their channel. Hmm. And yeah. so to me, it's, it's kind of a, a perpetual uh, cycle uh, of sharing content of value. And there's no shortage of like noise out there. Um, and so it's about you know, sifting through a bit of the noise and getting the quality. Mm-hmm. And everything I know about social media, social selling, and so on, has been accumulated either by, you know, just I'm self-taught uh, and just practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I first got on Twitter uh, in 2008, Twitter used to display all, it would say, posted by, like, Twitter later for BlackBerry or such and such for iPhone or it would be a desktop app. And so I was paying attention to every different app that was being used to post to Twitter or Facebook, if that was, uh, you know, if they served both purposes. And I would use them, try them out, abandon what I didn't like or didn't work, uh, and stick to what did. And that's how I became versed and, and keen on all the different tools and technologies that are out there. I mean, I had come from a technology background, so this was like right up my alley for uh, and, ter- and fed my curiosity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the ways that I differentiate my curriculum when it comes to social selling, although you know LinkedIn uh, constitutes a large portion of my curriculum, I go beyond that and start showing social CRM tools, complementary tools in, in on mobile, because increasingly people are mobile centric versus desktop uh, desk. Uh, Desktop-centric. I, I, uh, I dare you to say that again. <laughs> Desktop-centric. There you go. About, uh, can you talk about social CRM a bit? Because this is something I'm uh, learning, something TechBoc does. and uh, So explain it to me, sure. and that way other people also learn what's about social CRM. Well, if we look at CRM, you know, the acronym is for Customer Relationship Management, but the relationship we have with our customer is predicated on the data that we have about them. Mm-hmm. And so if I go back to my social profiling examples about the, the regional VPs around the table, if I can use different tools, technologies, and methodologies to learn more about people, what channels or social platforms they are 
active on, uh, and in what way. Um, the exchange transfer fund company that I gave the presentation to, you know, I showed, I gave the example of um, my client that was on LinkedIn and then was talking to the golf pro on Twitter. But then I added to that someone from uh, that very audience who had an Instagram account and someone else from the marketing team who had a Pinterest account. And the Pinterest account was related to recipes. And I said, this has nothing to do with the work or the business discussion we would have, but it's something I've learned about them. And it's a data point that I would incorporate into, I'll call it the umbrella uh, of social CRM. And it's the more data points I have about my prospects and, and, and hopefully my clients, the better I can serve them mm-hmm. and the stickiness of the relationship we would have over time. Mm-hmm. You're seeing increasingly companies marry mobile data, social data, and historical purchase data under the umbrella of social CRM. You know, I've worked with a company that did a month-long uh, pilot with a standalone coffee shop, and they tracked every mention of the coffee shop on Foursquare, Twitter, Facebook. They could grab the location-based um, uh, attributes that Instagram would share when the, those uh, the location um, data was enabled, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, if someone was taking a picture when they were there on Instagram, they may not have named the coffee shop, but the picture being taken with the location data was enough for them to aggregate it. And at the end of the month, they went back into the coffee shop and they presented the aggregate data of all the profiles or the predominant ones to the staff. And the staff is saying, oh, that guy comes in every Tuesday and he wants the cranberry muffin. That person takes soy instead of uh, regular milk. And they were marrying the offline interaction with these people to the social data and the social footprint they were leaving. Wow. Wow. And you're going to see more of that. I teach uh, digital strategy at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies. One of my students works for a company um, that attaches a device to a wireless router in stores and, and restaurants. And when you come in, it'll push notification to your phone saying, do you wish to w- use our free Wi-Fi? If you do, uh, just log in with Facebook. And you're opting in to be marketed to. <laughs> Yeah, talk about a captive audience, eh? Wow. And then they can tell you, the retailer or the restaurant owner, if those same people, so they gave an example, If the, you can stay anonymous I do, and say, I, I'm, forget it. Uh, they'll still profile you without your identity, as in, right. and uh, this is not, it's all above board. I don't want to say Right, right. Hey, we like, use it and sell it. We know it's above board. <laughs> So what they're doing is they're capturing, I'll call it the phone's profile, and there's right. no uh, nothing that no identifies idea. you yeah. by name or location or anything like that. But they can tell if you uh, visited another jewelry. So they worked with one retailer that happened to have a jewelry department, and they noticed that of all the people that they captured, 20% of them would go to another jewelry store. Hmm. So you get a sense of uh, traffic right. within your stores. Um, and you st- again, you get a sense of how many people came in, how many people potentially transacted. 
um, can you now, if they've opted in, if we use the opt-in example and they've opted in on Facebook, can I trigger by sending you, um, you know, we'll give you 10% off the next hour? Okay. Maybe you wouldn't have bought before, right. but can yeah. I convert you well, in a limited window and just you? <laughs> wow. Uh, Andrew, um, you know, I'm not sure how futuristic you're, you know, you're, you're thinking about this business, but, you know, one of the things that, um, that comes up in uh, regular meetings at, uh, at our organization is um, the idea of, like, where this social selling is all going to go. One of, the, one of the areas that we're putting some real serious attention on is social listing, where we are actually looking for uh, key uh, information points, key data points about individuals that, you know, that it's happening around around us and within our domains. And, of course, uh, t- you know, being the first to approach them about something that just took place and, and thereby, I guess, almost taking them a little bit by surprise. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm just wondering, do you see anything um, in advance even of that uh, for social selling as far as you're concerned? Well, when I kick off a program, I typically tell the um, participants that I you know, have one assumption or, or that I'm not expecting them at the end of the program to be sending in mails on LinkedIn like crazy or tweeting. In fact, I qualify it by saying, if you never tweet in your life, that's okay. What I want to show you about Twitter is the power that you can derive from it by simply listening. And building on what you were just saying, that um, it's amazing by paying attention to the updates that people share on LinkedIn, to the tweets that are posted on Twitter, not only by individuals, but by the companies that you're prospecting, their competitors, and how uh, your prospects and their competitors are being talked about in broader terms, if you want to be paying attention to that as well. What if you, to differentiate yourself as a salesperson, were the one uh, salesperson that knew that they were having customer service issues where they were being basically shamed publicly on Twitter and your competitors had no clue. You already knew a pain point that your prospect was experiencing in a particular channel that unbeknownst to your competitors, um, mm-hmm. you know, they just had no clue. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, one client I was working with uh, for another side of my business. It was a travel agency. Uh, I have an outsourcing business, uh, another side of it. And someone had posted on Twitter and this was not someone who followed uh, my client, had posted on Twitter uh, looking for uh, places to stay in Italy, four to five stars, uh, villa, um, Tuscany, a number of keywords and hashtags. And on behalf of my client, we responded. But on the same day of that post, Four competing travel agent or traveling uh, travel services companies responded to the same tweet. <laughs> so five competing companies offered their help. Wow. Now there are companies that had no idea that even uh, such a, an inquiry existed. Right. But five companies know now. 
I was working with a B2B co-location company, and I showed them a question that was posted on a website called Quora, Q-U-O-R-A. Oh, yeah. I've, uh, I actually, uh, I'm on that feed. It, yeah. It's an, uh, a little off the beaten path, but you'd be amazed at the kinds of questions being posed there and the possibility for sales leads or from just the standpoint of content curation and sharing helpful tips, Sometimes mm-hmm. the questions your prospects are asking um, that might be unrelated to uh, your whatever you're offering, but just being helpful and staying engaged with them, you can point them to some of the conversations that are happening on Quora. Well, uh, in the, this case, I showed this co-location company, uh, and co-location of servers is their bread and butter. Someone had posted on Quora that they were looking for an inexpensive place to move 1,000 servers. And I showed the, and my, this co-location company, one, had no idea that Quora existed, and two, <laughs> they just sat there and stunned going, wow, that would have been a good... <laughs> yeah, that's a, that would have been a good lead. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, again, I, I, said, I wasn't trying to embarrass them or shame them. Or right. that. I, right. Just to illustrate, if you're paying attention and the growing number of channels that you know, that you should be listening in, even just from the standpoint of to be different from your competitors, because if you're all swim, if you're all fishing in the same barrel, yeah. um, if the pie's not growing, it's just going to be um, diminishing returns. So if you are um, you know you find another barrel to complement the barrel you're already fishing in, great. You get a better fishing rod, even better. And if you just keep adding to your arsenal, and that's what social selling to me is, it's another arrow in your quiver, um, then hopefully uh, you're going to see yourself move the needle in the right direction. So while your competitors are pumping out content, look at me, I'm so good, I'm so great, you could be just sitting there listening in the weeds to conversations more specifically related to exactly what you do and and offering to serve within those conversations. Well, I mean, there's still value in in, in distributing content because, yeah. especially one of the, the a lot of the stats that social selling uh, evangelizes is this idea that someone's purchase decision, uh, is, you're, they're much farther down the path before they even engage a salesperson. So, what do I need to do to become the salesperson they call when they're at that stage? How do I increase the propensity to be the referred party? And if I catch them early enough in their decision-making journey, how do I stay with them through the course of that journey? Yeah. And it, part of it's through content. And um, I share this example. It's not a B2B example, but it's a great example of content marketing. Uh, River Pools from the U.S. It was founded in 2001. And then one of their founders, Marcus Sheridan, is now uh, calls himself the Sales Lion, and he does content marketing training for salespeople. And so here's a pool company that finds itself in 2008 facing the financial crisis yeah. uh, in the U.S., selling a luxury item that's usually paid for with discretionary income. And they're like, well, gee, what are we going to do? This is, you know, things are pretty dire. They started blogging in 2009, and what they blogged about were all the questions that came up in sales calls. What's the average uh, annual cost of maintenance for a pool? What's the difference between a tile pool uh, versus vinyl? 
um, and other, you know, what can I expect uh, the first year's cost to be? How much does it cost? He, all those kinds of questions. They wrote blogs that answered those questions because that's the way people Googled those questions. Yeah, to me, that's, that's, you know, that's really setting themselves up as thought leaders in that space. Well, in 2010, they sold 600 pools, and they are the most visited pool site in the world. Wow. Good for Just them. Just by answering questions and being helpful with their content. No cold calling, eh? I bet you they still have to pick up the phone. Yeah. But it's a lot easier because people have engaged with their content. And the, the other example I give is an uh, Indian corporation that makes solder paste. Uh, this is a company that has 72 keyword-driven blogs written by 13 of their engineers. They write about solder paste. <laughs> solder used to hold electronic components to assemble. Oh, man. That and it's sound profitable exciting. for them. Their motto is content to contact to cash. And I interviewed their director of marketing, and he said their head of sales said that the social media leads are the most qualified because mm-hmm. they've spent time with their content, they've engaged with it, and so... They've already flagged by their interaction with the content that uh, they are you know, engaged and they are interested parties. Wow! Well, that solder paste. You mean you mean like for like for plumbing and for fixing yeah, pipes? Exactly. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? I mean, uh, I, no I didn't know that any industry, of those guys would be online to start right. with. But so no matter what industry you're in, like your customers are looking for things at some point. So even what maybe totally uninteresting to me there's probably hundreds of people looking for yep. hey i'm doing this project and i need to know how to do this or that if it's specific to their industry and yeah when i hear uh, you know companies say well we don't know what we would write about i tell them about indium corporation and say that if they can write about solder paste and make <laughs> right. it profitable or worthwhile right. surely you have a story or two that you can tell Right. I like it. All right. So uh, I try not to make shows more than an hour because I get <laughs> tired. So let's ask uh, this one last thing. So sure. leave listeners with what's one thing, one thing. So they're like, wow, that's a lot of good information about one thing that you would want to leave with people. Um, I'll go back to what I was saying earlier about listen first. Uh, whether it be on LinkedIn or Twitter. And by listening, I mean just paying attention to, to the kind of things uh, people are sharing, the kinds of updates people are, are making, because those are opportunities to engage and converse with them. Um, whether it's for you know, the sake of selling or uh, call it a business objective, or simply to keep your network alive. People often network when they need to rather than network when they simply should just to keep their network vibrant. And I, that's probably what I would leave people with. That's brilliant advice. Brilliant advice. Yeah. I love it. The listening part is, uh, even in as in real life, the listening part is as valuable or more valuable than the talking part. Listen more than you speak. <laughs> yes. yes. But I spoke too much tonight, maybe. <laughs> Very good. Thank no, you so no, much. Oh, that was great. <laughs> I love it, Andrew. Thank you so much. The ROI point, uh, that one, 
that's worth the show for me uh, because that is something that every executive, you know, it's like your program, once you reach C in your name or a V in your name, VP or C-level, some what's the ROI in that? And so to be able to explain it to someone like that with numbers like you used mm-hmm. makes it fairly apparent that they should invest some time looking into it a little closer. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for your time tonight, Andrew. Thanks so much, oh, Peter. Pleasure. Thank you. Hey, you're very welcome, uh, Andrew. Uh, uh, great to have you online, and uh, and we'll look forward to our uh, next rendezvous. Thanks so much. Take care, guys. Have a good night. Thanks. Bye-bye. Cheers.